Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today, we welcome Scott Rodwin of Naropa University, an adjunct faculty teaching green building design in the environmental department. Scott is one of the leading green architects in the country, and thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about Green Building 101. My pleasure. So would you like to uh, introduce yourself a little bit, and then we can go ahead and start with the teaching. Certainly. I'm an architect and a builder. I have a 13-person design build firm here in Boulder. Graduated from Cornell in 1991 with an architecture degree and moved out to Boulder shortly thereafter. I've been working as an architect for about 26 years. And during that time, I've focused my career on creating the greenest buildings that I possibly can. We specialize in extreme green custom homes, but we've worked on schools and offices and every kind of building that you could imagine. My passion came from when I was in college, I saw a flyer on the wall for something called Eco Village of Ithaca, which is a form of intentional co-housing community. And I was like, what's this? I've never heard it. When I was in college, I never heard of sustainable design yeah. or green building or environmental anything. It was not part of the curriculum. It wasn't part of the cultural lexicon at the time. Mm. So when I went to the Eco Village meeting, they opened my eyes to all of this new stuff, passive solar design and using... Uh, creating buildings that were in harmony with the environment. And I was just finishing up my architectural degree, and it was astonishing to me that this was not discussed. So when I moved out to Boulder, I joined Nyland Co-Housing, which is a wonderful big co-housing project out here, and immersed myself in sustainable design. As part of that, I just became a sponge, learning everything that I could from everyone that I could. And over time, developed an expertise in it. At this point, I've taught green building for the city of Boulder, uh, I taught it at a Waldorf school here in, in Boulder for 12 years and have been teaching it at Naropa for a few years and absolutely love it. It's, it's my passion. It's what our firm does. We create lead platinum projects and net zero energy and even regenerative buildings at this point. And a big part of what I'm interested in is teaching other people how to do it as well in order to expand the reach of what we know uh, and to allow other people to accomplish creating buildings that don't have to compromise anymore. And this is the big thing that I talk about with all of my clients in particular, is that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you wanted something that's more environmentally friendly, there was a compromise that was always implied that you wouldn't get the same level of quality or beauty or functionality, or you'd have to pay an enormous amount extra in order to get that. These days, with, the, with sufficient expertise, you can actually create a building that doesn't compromise you can have all of those things, the beauty, the functionality, the budget, the sustainability, and you can create the highest possible quality of life both for yourself and your family and for the world around you as well. Where we start in the green building class, as I mentioned in, in the other podcast, is we talk about our awareness to the physical environment. Once we get past understanding what the current situation is and reframing 
our understanding of how we're interacting with the built environment, what the history of it is, and the larger cultural context of how we create buildings and cities. Then we get into the actual technical aspect of how to create a green building. There is no one way to do it. Every individual, every site, and every climate requires different solutions. Also, within each particular circumstance of this is my piece of property and this is who I am and this is how I want to interact with the house or the office or school, that there are a lot of different ways to go about accomplishing it. You can take the low-tech route of doing an earth ship or straw bale building or cob. You can do the high-tech route of creating a passive house, one that has four inches of foam wrapped around it and has a ground source heat pump and solar panels on the roof. And there's every hybrid in between. Your home is, for most people, the greatest and most enduring self-expression, other than having kids, I suppose, of, of who you are in the world. It's, for most people, a huge art piece. It says, these are my values. This is my stylistic expression of who I am. This is my functional expression. This is the budgetary or economic expression of who I am. And all of these things come together to create this enduring piece of art that you live in. It interacts with the world, with the sun and the wind and the water, with waste, with energy. And then you interact with it. Winston Churchill is famous for a, one, a number of wonderful sayings, but one of my favorites is, first we create our cities, and then they create us. The same thing is true for all of our buildings. So we start with the question of becoming aware of your environment, then the second question of how do you want to interact with your personal environment, the part that you have control over. Where do you choose to live? How do you choose to live? How do you want to operate the building? Then once we do that, then we set our goal. Do you want it to be net zero energy? Do you want it to be a healthy indoor air quality? Do you want to grow your own food? Do you want to recycle your own water? What level of sustainability and what aspects of sustainability are most important to you? Then, and only then, we start coming up with solutions. This is the design process where in the class I teach you about the full range of tools that are in your toolkit. Here's straw bale, here's foam insulation, here's solar panels, here's ground source heat pump, here's high-tech windows, here's passive solar design, here's low toxic or non-toxic materials. From that palette of materials, you can then pull the parts that work for you and that are the most important, and then we look at how they work as a whole. One of the fundamental precepts of sustainable design is holistic design. And what I mean by that is that you don't just slap solar panels onto an existing really bad building. You look at what are we trying to accomplish? How do we lower our energy usage? Because that's the question. Solar panels are always start with the question, how do I have lower utility bills, which makes my life easier and have, gives me a higher quality of life? How do I feel better about my impact on the larger environment because I'm producing less carbon and contributing less to, to climate change? So when we ask, what is it that you're trying to accomplish, and then here are the different ways, note that there are a lot of different ways to solve the problem, the problem of how do I live sustainably in a, in a beautiful and elegant way. And each person will choose a different solution. Some people want to live in a tree house. Some people want to live in a cave house. Some people want to live in a co-housing project. Some people want to live in the middle of a city. And you start with that. What is the form of the structure that you live in, you work in, you pray in, you go to school in? 
and then what kind of sustainable technologies work best for that particular building and the lifestyle you're trying to create. So when we ask that question, then we say, all right, if you're living in an apartment, indoor air quality might be the most important thing, and it's the thing that you have the control of. Or in a co-housing project, you might say, I want to live in an urban co-housing project. So finding a piece of land and then using that piece of land very efficiently and sharing resources is a fundamental part of the sustainable design. You might say, I want to live in the middle of the desert, and I'm going to build an earthship, or I'm going to live in the middle of the plains, and mm -hmm. I'm going to build a small <clears throat> bell house. Yeah. So it all stems from what is the life that you want to create, and mm -hmm. then picking the solutions that work best. For example, with straw bale design, if you said, I want to build a straw bale house out in the middle of the plains. Terrific, great starting point. Where do you live? Well, I live in Seattle. Well, that's not going to work so well in Seattle yeah. because it's wet. Straw <laughs> does not enjoy being in a wet environment. It creates mm -hmm. mold. Mold is bad for indoor air quality, and suddenly we've ruined one of the parts of sustainable design by our material choice. Mm. So if you say, well, I'm really focused on living in a straw by house, maybe Seattle's not the right place for you. Maybe you find someplace else. Or conversely, maybe you find a material choice or a product group that works best with the place that you're in. Solar panels don't function that well in Seattle because you don't have that many sunny days. But if you're living in Boulder, you know, here at Naropa, solar panels are a given. We have 300 days of, of powerful sunshine a year. You'd be foolish to not build a house with solar panels on it. Additionally, the sun is so strong here that if you took a design, a passive solar design from, say, Maine or Massachusetts where or Seattle, where there isn't a ton of sun, and you're trying to gather as much warmth as possible, as much solar radiation. If you use that same design here in Boulder, your house would overheat instantly. You'd have far mm. too many windows. Yeah. And then you have to use air conditioning to cool it. Where does yeah. your power come from the air conditioning? Well, coal-fired power plants. So suddenly, your desire to make the house sunny and bright and capture lots of sun using passive solar doesn't work the same way. Mm -hmm. So when we do passive solar here in Colorado, we actually focus more on protection from the sun rather than collection of the sun. Interesting. There are a lot of houses that were built in the 1980s by passive solar designers and builders that came from the East Coast to Colorado, mm -hmm. and most of them overheat like mad, so they had to mm. retrofit them with tinfoil on the windows, and it's, it's <laughs> sad. Um, it's sad and humorous, and we learn from it, and yeah. we learn from all of these things. And part of our journey in the sustainable design world is realizing that there, there is no perfect solution or technology, and that we keep on evolving, we keep on learning. Mm -hmm. And as long as we keep on learning, our buildings keep on getting better. Five years ago, creating a net zero energy building was the holy grail of sustainable design. Wow, doesn't use any energy over the course yeah. of a year. Now, we've gone past that. Uh, a couple years ago, we built our first regenerative building, one that actually creates more energy than it takes from the grid yeah. each year, and actually recharges the water that lands on the property. So we nice. have better water quality that exits the property than was, was collected. Mm -hmm. um, they also charge their car from the electricity that they generate on site. So even their transportation is covered. They use permaculture principles to grow their food on the property. All of these things contribute to a holistically regenerative solution for how do we live. Wow. Once we get past that overview of understanding what our goals are, then we dive into the technical solutions, which are generally divided into three categories, energy efficiency and production, second category of environmental quality, third is resource conservation. And 
these are generic categories, but they encapsulate most of the aspects of sustainable design, with the exception of sustainable planning. Sustainable planning is where you put all these things. The energy efficiency in a house or a school is made up of a couple main parts. We take a look at things like the envelope of a house. And I'll use the word house just generically for building because it's the easiest form, the unit of building for mm -hmm. most people to understand because yeah. you as an individual have more control over your house than of any other part of the physical environment. Yeah. Someday, you will either buy, remodel, or build a house, mm -hmm. probably, or an apartment or something. Like yeah. that. Um, most people don't do anything larger than that or don't have direct control. But once you actually own a piece of land, you get to choose, how do I want to live? Which is one of the most fundamental questions to everybody. Who do I want to love? Who do I, you know, where do I want to live? What do I want to live in? What do I believe? You know, these are the big questions. Yeah. What kind of work do I want to do? That's how you choose your life path. Mm -hmm. You spend so much of your time inside of that home that you've created or chosen or remodeled that the choices that you make have an enormous impact on your direct personal health, on your pocketbook, on the amount of time and energy that you have for other activities, and for your overall spiritual and mental health and well-being. Mm -hmm. If you live in a dark hole, I, I know somebody who actually lives in a house that's painted black inside and out. Yeah. And <laughs> the question Thanks. is, what would that do to a person? Mm. You know, when, when we see pictures of people that are being tortured and interrogated, they're not in a lovely, sunlit-filled, air-filled house. They're in a place that destroys the soul simply because of the quality of the physical environment. Yeah. So we're looking to create places that are beautiful and nurturing to the human inhabitants within them and also to the larger environment around them. For many, many years, we thought that we had unlimited resources of land and minerals and air and water and power and everything else. And somewhere around the 50s, 60s, you know, post-World War II, during the baby boom time, we realized suddenly that, oh, we don't actually have an mm -hmm. unlimited supply yeah. of land for waste and land for development and, and all these things that we thought we had, that we reached the end of the frontier, the finite limit on these resources. And we started thinking about how to use the resources we had more efficiently. And it took mm -hmm. us decades to get to a point of even beginning maturity. But we've now gotten to a point where we're recognizing that replacing incandescent light bulbs with LED light bulbs that use a tiny fraction of the energy and now create the same quality of light is simply a better choice for everyone, for yeah. us. And because what 300 and some odd million of us do individually impacts us collectively, we know that if we all switch to LED light bulbs, that our air quality is going to be better mm. for everyone, yeah. for my children, for your children on the other side of the country. Yeah. And that applies to every aspect of building a home or an office, a school, a church. So we start with the energy side of things. Why? Because it's most quantifiable, it's most tangible. You feel the direct payback, the, the, the karmic thanks from the universe because your utility bill is smaller. You put in an LED light bulb or you put on a solar panel, your energy bill immediately and directly gets smaller. Mm -hmm. You can trace the payback period of that choice. Yeah. The universe is paying you back for a better choice. So in one year, three years, 10 years for solar panels, you're gonna get paid back for the extra investment that it took to get that better, more environmentally friendly product. Mm -hmm. And that is true for many of the, the things in the energy category. 
that when you choose the more energy efficient mechanical system, you tend to pay more for it up front, but you get paid back with smaller utility bills over time. The second part is the energy production, that you can do the same thing with certain things such as solar power, wind, and there's a hybrid category for what's called ground source heat pump, incorrectly known as geothermal. Geothermal is steam coming out of the ground. Ground source heat pump is pipes going into the ground to collect the, the thermal energy of the earth. Ground source heat pump is this amazing thing where you put in conventional energy, but you get back 400% of what you put in. Wow. For every one unit of energy you put in, you get 400 back. So you use a pump to deliver liquid medium into the ground, and it delivers back four units of energy by leveraging the steady temperature of the Earth's core. Mm. Um, and by core, I don't mean the, the molten lava at the center. Yeah. I mean anything <laughs> below four feet in, uh, from the ground surface is about 55 degrees all year round. So we're able to dump therms into the ground or extract therms out of the ground through this system that operates very much like your refrigerator huh. at home. Your refrigerator actually is a heat pump, mm -hmm. same way that a ground source heat pump uses the incredible thermal reserves of the ground to extract heat or cool from the ground and place it inside of your building, inside of your house. So that's the energy category, and it's the one that we tend to focus a lot of energy, uh, no pun intended, on, <laughs> just because it is satisfying. You get a direct immediate payback, it's quantifiable, yeah. measurable, um, and it's something that there are even tax, there's a 30% a federal tax credit for putting solar panels on your roof. These are things where there is a collective cultural incentive and uh, reward for doing these things right mm -hmm. now. The second category is environmental quality. This one, there is a direct personal impact that is very, very powerful. It really has to do with your personal health and even more powerfully, the health of your and my and everyone's children. What I mean by that is, if you can imagine a baby crawling along the floor with their face inches away from the carpet, if carpet is made from petroleum and this petroleum product, this carpet that you've just installed in your house, smells like new carpet smell, that smell is the off-gassing of volatile organic compounds. It yeah. is a known human carcinogen. It causes suppression of the immune system. In mm -hmm. some people, in more extreme cases, it causes asthma. It causes um, headaches, um, chronic fatigue. There are a wide variety of things where collectively all the toxicity of our environment, whether it's the air we breathe or the water we drink or the food we eat, uh, all of these things assault the human system, particularly mm -hmm. the immune system, and can collectively suppress it or make it hyper-reactive and cause all kinds of, of health issues for us. Uh, we've seen it most recently and profoundly probably in China where the air quality in Beijing during the last Olympics was so noticeably horrible that many countries wouldn't send their runners or wouldn't send their athletes because it would have such a negative impact so quickly and that asthma rates in China, particularly in their cities, are astronomical and yeah. have been going up in such a way that you cannot not notice yeah. the direct and immediate correlation. So when we look at that, asthma is most clearly tracked in childhood asthma because kids' lung tissue is not fully developed and therefore is more directly impacted by the toxicity of the air that, that we breathe. So going back to the house example, if you have the choice between getting a carpet that off-gasses a lot of volatile organic compounds or doesn't, which would you choose for your family? Oh, I'm going to choose a sustainable one right. for sure. And that 
even though it's not putting money back in your pocket and it might even cost more than a conventional product, mm-hmm. most people are willing to make that investment in both their health and even more so in their children or their family's health. Yeah. So yeah. Th- that question of indoor air quality applies to most of the materials that go into our house, the flooring, the floor finish, the cabinetry, the paint, every surface material and also the materials that are in the walls, the formaldehyde that's contained in sheet goods such as plywood, things like that. Part of the class is focused on bringing awareness to the products that make each and every building, the furniture you sit on, the clothing that you wear. We read a book in the class called Cradle to Cradle by a fellow named William McDonough. And in that, he dissects and reinvents how we think about products. The term cradle to cradle is a new way of thinking about it so that you don't have a product that is cradle to grave, which is you extract the raw materials from the environment, you bring it to a processing plant, you get raw materials that then go to a factory. The factory makes whatever widget or thing or furniture or drywall that you need. Mm-hmm. And then you use it in, in your house or on your person. And then at the end of its useful life, you throw it into the landfill, yeah. causing water quality issues and air quality issues. And, and uh, there are a variety of things that impact you both collectively and individually yeah. because of the choices of material. So we start the class by looking at the micro level. We look at individual materials mm-hmm. and we talk about where everything comes from and help you to gain greater awareness of the world around you. Most of us don't think, where do my shoes come from? Where does this chair I'm sitting come mm-hmm. from? Where does the carpet that you're sitting on top of and the wall paint and the drywall and the window trim and the windows, where do these things come from? How are they manufactured? How will they be disposed of? This is the start of understanding our material conversation in the green building class. This question of where do the materials come from really becomes thrown into starkest relief when we're talking about indoor air quality. But it also has to do with the overall environmental quality. If we are chopping down a mountain to get the coal for the power plant to drive the electricity to turn on the lights, suddenly your choice of lights becomes really important because you just chopped down a mountain. If the materials that you are putting into your house eventually become toxic, and in a landfill and affect water and air and soil quality. Again, this goes back to the overall environmental quality of what you're choosing, not just in the immediate moment of how it impacts your health directly and right now, but long-term. The last part, though, also ties into the same question of where do you get the materials from? And this last category is called resource conservation. So we have energy efficiency and production, environmental quality, and then resource conservation. Resource conservation asks the question of, if you had to cut down a forest in order to build your house, would you do that? If your kids no longer had a forest to play in, is that a good trade-off? You got a great house, but there's no longer a forest. Almost every material that currently goes into a house has a greener, alternative, one that has less of an impact on the resources that we use. So it impacts things like the toilet that you flush 
there are toilets out there that use 40% less water, the EPA WaterSense uh, labeled fixtures. There are appliances that are energy star rated that mean they use less energy. And while this is a crossover to the energy section, it also does talk about the extraction of coal or natural gas. So there's a resource conservation aspect to that. But I would say the most tangible one really is lumber. Lumber is a wonderful renewable resource. We're growing new forests all the time, but we have to make sure that we don't cut them down at such a rate that they are unable to grow back in a sustainable way. And for many years, we were doing clear cutting of forests and it was creating unhealthy ecosystems because then the lumber producers would grow back giant areas that were all a homogenous tree, mm. all planted at the same time. And that does not create a vibrant and healthy ecosystem. So we look at things like using uh, certified sustainably managed forest lumber products or using manufactured or sorry, engineered lumber. Engineered lumber are things like oriented strand board, OSB, to replace larger dimensional lumber. When you do that, you can use small, fast-growth aspen trees rather than 40-year-old oak trees to create the same quality of uh, engineered, or same quality of lumber, because lumber is gonna be used in houses for many years to come. So how do we make the resources that we have stretch further? The book I mentioned at the beginning, Cradle to Cradle, introduces a different paradigm or a different way of thinking about all of our products and all the resources they come from, where they don't ask, how can we make it last longer? How can we recycle it? Because ultimately, if it's just recycled, at least conventionally, recycling ultimately ends up in a landfill. You may take that bottle and grind it up and make something else out of it, but it usually stops there, and after that, it goes to the landfill. Cradle to Cradle asks us to rethink our entire way of thinking about the production of our buildings and all the stuff that goes into them and say, is there a way to create a, an upcycling or even a perpetual cycling of materials mm. so that we think about the manufacture and construction of our buildings or houses so that they can be pulled apart at the end of their useful life cycle and return to their component elements so that we can keep mm. the, the raw materials separated and reusable for the future. Because yep. once we commingle things, it gets a little bit complicated mm -hmm. uh, or uneconomically feasible to, yeah. to pull them apart again. <laughs> so those are the three major categories of sustainable design. And we look at all kinds of wonderful things like passive solar design and natural ventilation and working with the, the natural environment using local materials and essentially creating a house or a building that is responsive to its specific physical environment and how you plan to use it. And then one that is as close as possible to being in harmony with that physical environment. Because you can take the most amazing house in Florida and put it in Alaska, and it won't work very sustainably, and vice versa. You can create yeah. a truly green <laughs> home in Alaska and put it in Florida, and it won't work very well. Yeah. So what we're looking to create is a home or building that is in as close to perfect natural harmony with the environment, its environment as possible. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I really resonate with um, the questions and asking someone, a client, someone who's interested in the sustainability of things, of what's, what are you looking for in, in the thing that you are building? Also, what is your location? What, is your, what are you surrounded by? What kind of community are you around? It's really interesting to go deeper into that because some products in which you think you want, they might not work as well exactly. being in a different location yeah. of just 
where you are in proximity of where that is or how that works. So these are, these are very important things to ask because to be sustainable is nowadays it's, it's so important and it's also becoming more available for us. Um, how you're talking about uh, the, the products are becoming more available. They're, they're more accessible. They're easy to find. They're a little bit cheaper or we might get tax cuts or something like that. So I think if we move that further, then it's just going to be the thing to do. It's not going to be like sustainability is this thing over here. It's, it's, that's how you start your project. Exactly. And it is becoming mainstream. There, there's, when people come into the class, there's sometimes a feeling of pessimism about the world or cynicism that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We yeah. have climate change. We're running out of resources. We're polluting mm. everything. And part of the, the overall tenor of the class is that there is enormous possibility and there's a lot of room for optimism that the changes that have occurred in the green building industry in the last 20 years dwarf any change really in the history of building. There has been no time in the history of building where we have seen this sea change of both yeah. technology and awareness and design understanding. Mm -hmm. We've gone from creating just 20 five years ago, buildings that were really unconscious yeah. and inefficient and unsupportive of mm. quality of life for both humans and the rest of the planet to buildings now that are coming awfully close to net zero impact, carbon yeah. neutral impact overall. And that's just in one generation. That's mm. an amazing transformation. Yeah. It, historically, over the, the history of, of architecture and building, it usually takes hundreds of years to make even a very small change. Yeah. So what, what's happening right now and is only continuing to accelerate, it gives me great cause for optimism, probably one more generation, that carbon neutrality and regenerative mm. building in general will become the standard for all building permits and pretty much every place in the industrialized world. And by industrialized world, it's important to recognize that the reason that that's where our focus is so important is because we're the ones that are using the resources, generating the negative impacts, the pollution, the climate change. The developing world, yes, there are certainly issues where people are burning uh, kerosene to generate their heat in Nepal. I've been there, I've seen it. There's massive pollution in Kathmandu. Yeah. Uh, but as a general rule of thumb, when you look at the carbon footprint, which is the, the most universal measure we have of a person in the United States and a person in China, the average American uses, has double the carbon footprint of the average Chinese person. And the average Chinese person versus the average person in sub-Saharan Africa is they're multiple times the, the person in Africa. So mm -hmm. what we really need to be focusing on is our own backyard, the choices that we make individually in our lives. Yes. Because it's the developed world that is driving the consumption of resources and, yeah. the, and the, the destruction of the planet at the moment. So we have an enormous opportunity to make an incredible impact in decreasing that harm. Yeah, yeah. And here we are. Yeah. Going and just go for it. Yeah. So thank you for sharing all that with us. It was really inspiring. And so we say thank you to uh, Scott Rodwin for joining us today. That was his lecture on Green Building 101, an introduction to sustainable design. So appreciate having you today. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. 
Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.